Good morning, everyone. God is so good. All the time. We could go on right now, and God has been amazing already this morning, hasn't he? Well, it's lovely to see everyone from this angle. I'm used to, be, I'm used to being up there, so it's a bit different. So I know Wendy spoke yes last week, and she said she could do a whole sermon on just one word, he. I'm fairly simple, so I'm going to do a whole sermon on one word. Um, but the word comes from Psalms, so if we could all go, turn to Psalm 3. Uh-oh. <laughs> She's seen the notes, yeah. Okay. Everybody there? Wave at me if you're not. No good. Okay. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me on his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Wow. What a psalm. What a psalm. This is the psalm I want to look at today. But as Dan, Wendy, Rob, they all encourage us, what's the context? What was happening when, when David wrote this psalm? Well, the background for this psalm is that David had reigned for decades in Jerusalem, one of the most powerful rulers in the world. His military prowess was legendary. He was the top of his game. He was extremely wealthy. He had many servants, many wives. But then David sinned. He sinned with Bathsheba and ordered the death of her husband, Uriah. He did then repent when the prophet Nathan confronted him. But years later after that, the story gets interesting. Don't, everyone, don't anyone tell you the Bible's boring? It's not. If you cherry-pick scriptures, don't do that. Please read the Bible. Please read your Bibles. Read the stories in the Bible. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, took revenge by murdering Amnon. Absalom then fled into exile, and for years... But then David finally agreed that he could return. But after his return, David refused to see his son for many years. And the resentment built in Absalom. And he began to woo the disgruntled people. He tried to turn them against David and be a more sympathetic leader. Finally, Absalom pieced together a strong conspiracy. A coup d'etat. Against his father David. But David realized that in order to survive, he had to flee with his supporters. And this story can be read in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. Anyone want a spoiler for how that story ends? 
there was a great battle. 20,000 men were killed in this battle. And at the very end, Absalom rode his donkey through a forest and he caught his head on some branches in a tree and he was left hanging. The Bible said he was left hanging between heaven and earth. I mean, that's a film I would watch. That's, that's a brilliant film. But, so, back to it. That gives us a very small glimpse of what David was facing when he wrote this song. It was his most traumatic, most humiliating experience. Everything he'd spent his whole life working towards had been unraveled, had been turned against him. He was having to flee the city and run away for his life. Many who he thought were his friends and his allies had turned against him, and they sided with his son. The most painful wound for David, though, was the treachery and betrayal of his son. Life was falling apart for David. But back to Psalm 3. This is when he wrote Psalm 3. It's the first psalm with a title. It says, when a psalm of David when he, fred, when he fled from his son Absalom. The psalm is known as what's called a lament song. It could also be called a complaint psalm. But what does that mean? It's not just David moaning about something. Oh, how terrible my life is. Oh, isn't it bad? Oh, poor me, poor me. It's not having a pity party. Instead, it shows us the process David takes to work through this situation, what he does to work through what he's facing. I can see three distinct parts in this psalm. Verses 1 to 2, where he says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many of those who rise up against me, many say of me, there is no help for him in God. Initially, he's so overwhelmed by what he's facing, he just can't, he can't do anything with it. He's gripped by fear. He's gripped by anxiety. He's so, he just can't do anything with it. And he says, many are those who save me. There's no help for him in God. The people wouldn't have thought that God couldn't help him. They would have thought he's un unwilling to help him because of his past sin. They would have thought he's just getting his, what he deserves. You know, he sinned. He did this terrible thing. This is what he deserves. God's abandoned him. When he was fleeing, a man named Shimei shouted directly at David. He shouted at him and said, there's no help for you in God. As David was fleeing. What do we do if someone shouts at us? If someone shouted abuse at you, what would you do? Do you ignore it? Do you shout back? Do you dwell on it? Are you unable to move past it? If someone speaks ill of you, what do you do? What did David do? Well, David wrote a psalm. I'm not saying we can write a psalm. but So David came into a time of prayer with his father. He unburdened himself to the Lord. He poured out his troubles to him. And that's right to do. We can pour out our troubles to God. He hears us. He knows what we go through. He, he cries when we cry. He rejoices when we rejoice. So it's not wrong to cry out to God and unburden yourself to God. He went into the presence of his heavenly father in one condition, but he came out very differently. But what happened? What happened between verses 2 and verses 3? Selah. Now, it would seem this one little word, Selah, is very important. Because let's look at what happens in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me on his yes. holy hill. Yes, amen. Look at the shift between the verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4. Uh -huh. 
is completely different. In that time when he cried out to God with that sila, it changes the way David looks at the situation. He removes his eyes from what's going on around him and he focuses his eyes on the Lord. He does it again in verses 5. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke. That's a miracle in itself. He was being pursued by the, the forces. Jesus sustained him in his sleep. He said, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against all around me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He presses into God again, but this time it's different. He praises God for the victory. You can see that nothing that can come against him is going to prosper. David knew the truth of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? David lived that truth. He found comfort and encouragement through God, through focusing on God, and instead of focusing on his battle and his surroundings, his countenance changed. He remembers that what God has purposed cannot be thwarted. What God has said will come to pass. He's reminded that salvation comes from God and God alone, not through our works, not through our actions, but what through God says. So like I said, out of that amazing song, just one word I want to focus on. Selah. This beautiful, thoughtful, mysterious word appears in the Bible 74 times. 71 times in the book of Psalms. But what does it mean? Why is it there? Wendy always encourages us, Dan always encourages us, look at the Hebrew. Go and find out what it means. And I thought, yes. I thought, right, let's do it. Let's see what this means. It'll, it'll really unlock the whole psalm for me. Turns out the question of what Selah means has been debated for thousands of years. <laughs> Great. Brilliant. So don't, don't expect me to tell you what it is <laughs> But many commentators have suggested that it means to pause or to reflect. And in the context of this psalm, that makes sense. We focus on what's around us. No, pause. Focus on God. Lift your eyes up to God. As Annie said, look to God. Take your eyes off your situation. Focus on God because he will sustain you. He will sustain you. But the unambiguity of the word has meant that some, some versions of the Bible change it or remove it completely. In the New King James Version, it's there. Sorry, Trudy. In the NIV, it's, taken, it's, been, it's been demoted to a footnote. The Hebrew word silah, a word of uncertain meaning. So if no one really knows what silah means and some translations footnote it, why does it matter? Why am I here talking about one word? Well, the short answer is no one really knows. Goodbye. (laughs) The long answer is it matters very much for several reasons. Firstly, it matters because it's in the Bible. The Bible truly is the words of God given to us. And every single one of those words matters. Whether we don't fully understand it, whether we can translate it or not, it doesn't matter. It's still important because it's the Word of God. Silah matters because it's transliteration. Sorry, it was a bit long. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, Bibles are written in English, 
because the vast majority of the original Hebrew and Greek words can be translated into English. However, some words cannot be translated into English. So take the word Eretz. That means earth. So when they translate the Bible, when it originally said Eretz in Hebrew and translated into English, it just says earth. Or for instance, hallelujah. Wendy mentioned hallel a few weeks back. That's literally a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means hallel for praise and yah, which is God. So instead of it being translated into praise God, the original Hebrew is left in hallelujah. And that's important because we can read it and say it almost the same way as they did when it was Hebrew. And that has importance. Like hallelujah, the fact that silah is transliteration and not translation, it doesn't diminish its importance. It's still important that it's there. It signifies that when we read silah, we are pronouncing the word generally the same way it would have been pronounced thousands of years ago by those who originally wrote it and read it. Except I've got a Janner accent. <laughs> silah matters because it encourages us, to, encourages us to pause and reflect. As I said, many commentators believe that silah means to pause. This could have been a request for the reader or the listener to pause and think about what's just been said, or it could have been a space for voices to stop and instruments to play. We don't really know, as I've said. But regardless, the word silah, it causes us to pause and consider what God may be saying, even when we don't fully understand. Silah gives us an opportunity to take a moment away from this crazy, non-stop, busy life we all tend to live and consider the immense mysteries and the wonders of God. Paul speaks of this in Colossians 2. He says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge... So ultimately, knowing that we don't have a complete definition for Silah, isn't it fitting that Silah should be just like our faith, just beyond our full understanding? So what do we do with this? Like, great, Chris, you've talked about a word no one really knows about, something that happened thousands of years ago. But great, what, what do you want me to do with that? So Charles Spurgeon wrote this about Psalm 3. He said, if all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Now, David wouldn't have wrote that if he didn't at least think on it a little bit. But what did David do? How did he react? He pressed into God. He didn't focus on the situation he was facing. He took his eyes off the situation. He put his eyes on the Lord. Amen. And we can do that. When we face a situation in our lives, we can feel like it's the end of the world. We can say, oh, it's the worst thing ever. Oh, no one understands us. Why is this happening to me? What do we do when we face situations in our life? Do we focus on the situation, or do we look to God? 
God asks us to look to him, to pause in his presence. Let God direct our thoughts. Do you ever feel like your transgressions are holding you back from God? Do you ever think, surely God won't bless me? Look what I've done in the past. Look at the sin in my life. How can God bless me? But David gives us a great example to follow. In Acts, Paul tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Did David do everything right all the time? Far from it. Far from it. We know David had sinned. And the people thought God had turned his back on him. But David was called a man after God's own heart because despite of his sin, despite of his flesh, his heart was towards God. When David sinned and he truly repented, he went after God again. He dug deep again into God. David fixed his eyes on the Lord. And when you fix your eyes on the Lord, that changes your focus. Look at how David's thoughts changed in the psalm. Look how he went into the situation one way and he came out another after he paused in God's presence. That's what we need to do. We need to pause in the Lord's presence before we react. And the Lord gave me this word at the start of the year and I've implemented a bold new strategy. It's been revolutionary. It's changed the way I deal with situations. It's changed the way I look at everything. And it's just this one word. It's Selah. It stops me in my tracks. It stops me from going down the usual road. It stops me from doing things the way I've always done them. It stops me from doing what I want to do, and it makes me focus on God. No matter what we're facing in life, the difficulties, the traumas, the pain, the hardships, we need to pause in the presence of the Lord. Pour out our hearts to him. Let him hear our pain. Let him hear what our suffering and then let him direct our paths. It's in the pause that we need to allow God to speak to us. We need to let him adjust our focus, get our eyes back onto who he is and what he is able to do. Ephesians says that now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask, think, or imagine, according to the power that works in us. I think that covers everything. There's nothing God cannot do. No situation he cannot overcome. No battle he cannot win. It's in these pause moments that we need to deal with our hearts, deal with our attitudes, adjust our mindsets, so that nothing gets in the way of our relationship with him. The pause can help us take the next step so we don't get stuck in our head. Does it change the situation we're facing? No. The situation's still the situation. Does it change the way we approach the situation? Yes. Absolutely. When we rely on God and his strength and his wisdom, we can be different in the situations we face. You say, okay, that's great, Chris. But what did Jesus say? Well... In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells us what our focus should be on. In Matthew 6, where the Sermon on the Mount is recorded, in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on, 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature or one hour to his life? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies in the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass in the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Also, what should I do about this situation? What should I do about that? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us what to do. He didn't say you won't have troubles. In the week when I was, I was listening to something, and you had the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man that built his house on the sand, when the storm came. didn't say if. It was when the storm came. The wise man's house was built on the rock. It's not if the storm comes, when the storm comes. What have you built your foundations on? Have you built your foundations on the Lord? Or have you built your foundations on sinking sand? So it's not about the word Selah. It's about what it represents. It's what it helps you to do. Seek first the kingdom of God. Focus on the one who knows you, the one who knows what you need, and the one who knows how to do it. So I urge you try it. It's one simple word, and it's a five-second pause. It's Selah. Pause in his presence and focus your thoughts on him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we want to focus on you. We don't want to focus on everything that goes around us. The situations we may face, the trials we may face, Father, help us to put our focus on you. Help us to focus on the one who knows what we need. If you don't know Jesus today, I urge you, accept Jesus. He is the one that can direct your paths. He is the only true wise king. We don't know what to do with our lives. When we lean on our own understanding, we go wrong. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the everlasting arm supporting us when we go through our trials. Amen. 
He is always there for you. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord.